elect to become the president and CEO of Smart Electric Power Alliance at the age of 27. In today's Greenlight episode, I will speak with Julia Hamm about this, the value of taking significant risks to making big career moves, salary negotiation, and her personal champions. We will also discuss SEPA's robust, specific diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, including a board of directors target of 40% of seats being filled by underrepresented groups, as well as gender parity. We will also speak about SEPA TV, which has been highlighting utilities who are keeping their foot on the pedal when it comes to decarbonization. Despite the pandemic, as well as critical topics like environmental justice and a just clean energy transition. Thanks for tuning in to the green light. Now let's dive in. So I'm Catherine McLean, founder and CEO of Dylan Green. And today I have with me another neighbor in Arlington, Virginia, Julia Hamm, CEO of SEPA. Thanks for joining me, Julia. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Uh, so you've had such an incredible track record from founding Solar Power International, which we all love and miss dearly, to leading the Smart Electric Power Alliance, SEPA, as the CEO and president for nearly 17 years, to being the chair of the board of directors of CLI, the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, which we all think so highly of. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. You've hit the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> But a lot of people ask me, how did I get to where I am? And I would have to say it wasn't really intentional. It wasn't by design. When I went off to college, actually, you know, story I often tell, I remember when I was in, in high school, I remember very explicitly sitting in my favorite chair in my parents' living room, going through the book of majors, which was literally like this thick. Yeah. And just like going through and, and just circling anything that even looked remotely interesting to me. Yeah. Which I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I actually entered college as a natural resources major. And where I went at Cornell, I don't know if it's this way at other universities, but essentially you go in as a freshman, there's science classes for science majors and then science classes for non-science majors. Right. And natural resources was a science major. And so I very quickly, after just one semester, realized I should not be in a major that's a science major. Okay. <laughs> uh, not my strong suit. Yeah. So I very quickly, in my second semester of school, switched to business management and marketing. Okay. And clear, like that was an immediate fit. But I tell that story because I think it actually sort of shows that even though I didn't know it, I sort of always had this inclination for the environment and you know, sort of issues in that realm, even though I couldn't articulate it at that point in my life, but I was right. sort of drawn to that as a major, even though it didn't turn out to be the right fit. Right. So uh, not too surprising, I guess, that I did by chance end up or in the energy industry. Mm -hmm. So when I graduated from college, I actually went and did meeting planning for a year and I was bored out of my mind. And so mm -hmm. a year out of college, I started working for the company that back at that time actually ran SEPA. So okay. I didn't work for SEPA, but SEPA was my primary client. And mm -hmm. so I actually have been involved deeply with SEPA for more than 20 years. And then was there at the consulting company for a few years, uh, left and went just a short stint at ICF International, which I loved, <laughs> phenomenal company. But the SEPA board came and said, hey, you know, we want to make a change. Would you be willing to come be our first actual employee at SEPA? So I, I did that in January of 2004. And it was really like starting over, like the organization had been around for more than a decade, but we were wiping the slate clean and starting fresh. So for me, it was very much like being 
an entrepreneur and starting a brand new venture. It's been fantastic here. You know, it's been almost my entire career. You know, some people say, well, aren't you getting bored? Like, don't you want to go do something different? But yeah, it's not boring. SEPA is in this constant state of evolution because of the industry we're in, but also the role we play in the industry that's helping to facilitate change that every year is something different for us. So it, it doesn't yeah. ever get boring. Yeah. And you're giving hope to all the college graduates that you don't have to know exactly what you want to do the rest of your life at 21. Yes. <laughs> so that's positive. <laughs> yeah. So what would you say is the most critical factor in your career success and what What's some advice that you could give to others looking to follow in your footsteps, especially maybe women? Yeah. So, you know, I was really fortunate to, well, first of all, obviously hard work makes it, it it makes a difference, right? So, you know, early in my career, I worked really hard. I showed my capabilities, demonstrated what I'd accomplish. And as a result of that, at very junior levels within an organization, ultimately I ended up developing some champions, you know, people who really became champions of me personally. Um, And it was, you know, those people who brought me back into SEPA Mm -hmm. a few years down the road, giving me an opportunity. I mean, I was 27 when I became the head of SEPA and that was a big risk, right? I mean, it was a big risk for the SEPA board who were all seasoned executives to say, you know what, we're going to put this organization's future in the hands of a 27 year old. Wow. Um, So I sort of say it's a combination of the fact that I worked really hard to demonstrate what I was capable of together with the fact that I was fortunate enough to have, you know, a couple of people who really recognized not only what I had done, but what my potential was and were willing to take a chance and really take a a chance on me. Wait, that's incredible. I didn't realize that, that you were so young when you went in there. So you, were you the CEO at 27? I was, but I was the only employee, so I was okay. the CEO myself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we right back to one employee. Still pretty um, amazing, but I think though. <laughs> the advice in there is relevant to that whole story. Is sure. that, you know, I was at ICF. I had a great, like I said, it's a great company. I loved yeah. my job there. I loved the people I work with. I really enjoyed what I was doing. And when the SEPA board came back to me and said, hey, would you come take over, sort of basically start over from scratch? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was a huge risk for me. So it was a huge sure. risk for the board to choose me, but it was a huge risk for me to choose to take the, to leave ICF to go take the job. Itself. Right. Because the organization was in really bad financial condition at that point. Mm. Uh, there was no strategic plan. There was no path forward. So they were right. trying to come figure out the path forward. Right. And in hindsight, you know, sort of, I thought, well, if I'm going to take this risk, I'm going to ask for a really big salary and really has to be worth it. At the time, I thought I was asking for a really big salary. And in hindsight, I should ask for way more. Yeah. <laughs> That's one lesson. Right. <laughs> so I think the fact that I took that risk really paid off. And I took it early enough in my life where I didn't have a family to support at that yeah. point in time. And so it was a risk, but if it didn't work out, I could have pretty easily found something else. Sure, so sure. I think it's, it, for me, I think the advice to people is you got to be willing to take risks yep. in order to really make big career moves. Yeah. And what do you love most about your job? 
Hmm, that's a good question. Gosh, there's lots of things I love about it. <laughs> you know, it's funny because you had asked me how many how many months ago was March? How many ever months ago March was? You know, oh my gosh. Asked, <laughs> you know, if you'd asked me that question that <laughs> February, or when people ask me that question, my answer was always like, I love the external industry engagement. Like I love going to the events, I love being on stage, I love yeah. sharing the vision. Yeah. So it's really sort of interesting now that all that stuff is gone and yeah. all of my engagement is like this with a video screen. I still do love it. It's different, yeah. but I thought I would really miss it in a way that I don't. <laughs> yeah. so I do still love the, you know, obviously the external engagement part of it and there are ways to do that virtually. Yeah. But I think my perspective's changed a little bit now and sort of what really motivates me and excites me about working at CIFA. I am a visionary through and through, like that's sort of how people describe me as, as, as a visionary leader. So, right. you know, what I love about it is that I'm always looking farther out into the future than anyone around right. me. And I'm help, but I'm also helping other people look farther out into the future. Really, you know, SEPA is just a great environment in which to be able to do that is to sort of have a vision and not just move that direction myself, but help other people move in that direction. You guys have aggressive recruitment targets for the board of directors, mm -hmm. including gender parity and 40% membership from underrepresented communities. Mm -hmm. So you're including that as people of color, low income, native populations, LBGTQ. Can you talk a bit more specifically about how SEPA is taking the lead uh, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with that board diversity sure. target. I will mention that is a newly revised target. So we've had a board diversity target for a number of years now, which was just a single target of having 40% of the seats filled by diverse individuals. So that's okay. just sort of a catch-all. And so earlier this summer, we re revisited that and broke it into the two pieces. So gender parity as one piece, plus 40% of seats filled by underrepresented groups. And so we still have a lot of work to do. We, we are not there yet. <laughs> but not solved working. it in the summer. Yeah, I mean, we're <laughs> working really, we're in the middle of the nominations process right now. Yeah. Working. It's a great example of how having a stated target really changes behavior because yeah. it, it has changed completely how uh, the nominating committee is, is approaching things. So that's a really important piece of it. And, and as, the, as our board talked about what that target should be, there were questions around, is that too aggressive? Are we going to be able to meet that? Like, how long is it going to take us? And ultimately, you know, the board decided, you know what, like, SEPA should be on the cutting edge. We should have really aggressive targets. We want to be sort of showing our leadership in this space and showing others that they should be following. So it's great to have that commitment all the way, starting at, at the board level, all the way at the top. Throughout our organization, there's lots of pieces to it. So I wouldn't say we have a specific DEI initiative. What we're really doing is looking to embed DEI throughout all of our work. And so we've got, you know, again, the board targets from the top down, but really thinking about it more as sort of a bottoms up throughout the rest of the organization. So what we've done is every team within SIFA has identified what they can do in their own day-to-day -day work that helps advance DEI. In some cases, you know, for example, for our HR people, obviously that's for things that they can do internally with our own staff. But with our content, our research people, it's things like when we do case studies and we need to interview people for case studies, 
making sure that we're looking for diverse voices to do the interviews with. Things like, obviously we do a lot of events, be it in person or virtual or both. That's an obvious one, right? Just making sure we're much more uh, thoughtful about the composition of our speakers at our events. But taking that up to another level, for all of the major events we have, we have planning committees. So that's one thing that the team this summer identified is we need to make sure we actually have really good diversity on that planning committee. Right. And we have research advisory councils. So, hey, wait a minute. We don't have good diversity on a research advisory council. We need to change that. Right. So, you know, I'll be the first to admit we've always cared about the issues, but they have not been front and center for us with right. this until this year. And so, you know, a lot of it is how do we get our own house in order first? How do we make sure that our team really understands these issues so that we can then figure out how we can best help the industry. But again, with SEPA, the nature of who we are in terms of the work we do, I think the biggest opportunity for us is raising the visibility of the issues, as well as elevating the voices of diverse people in our community. And keeping the momentum going, making sure yeah. that it's not just a 2020 thing, but it's a 2020s thing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I wanna talk about SEPA TV which I love the name of that. So I've been really enjoying your interviews on SEPA TV, which cover critical topics like decarbonization goals despite the pandemic, utilities and social equity, as well as microgrids, resilience for natural disasters. Very inspiring, especially in times like these. So what motivated you to start SEPA TV and what are some highlights from the interviews you've done so far? So interestingly, in the pandemic, I think SEPA TV would have emerged without the pandemic, or if it did, it was probably years down the road. Yeah. Some of the things that I think got expedited. You know, we had been talking actually in our plans for this year, we had been planning to launch a podcast. <laughs> and once the pandemic hit, I don't know why, I don't know exactly why, but we sort of sort of wait, we're not sure that that's exactly the right path. And so uh, I can't take credit for the idea of SEPA TV. That's came from the team, but you know, really I think everybody when we first went into everybody working remotely and sort of everybody wanted that, how, how do we create personal connections? Yeah. Felt like having the actual visual faces was more important than just a podcast. And so, you know, that was <laughs> the birthing of, of SEPA TV. Um, but in parallel with that, so, you know, sort of the team was working on the concept of SEPA TV. Well, at the same time, I was thinking about the fact of like, again, in the early months, like March, April, I was concerned that given the pandemic, I didn't want any utilities to take their foot off the accelerator on their carbon reduction plans. Okay. So I was thinking like, how do we tell the story to the industry about why it's important to not slow down? Okay. And so as I sort of started sharing that concern and saying, hey, how do we tell the story? And I started talking to a team about it. They said, oh, well, we have this idea for SEPA TV. Let's make that our first series. Okay. So it actually worked out really well. So the first series we did was me interviewing six utility CEOs who have really significant carbon reduction targets and talking with them about why they were not taking their foot off the accelerator. Also acknowledging, you know, what are some of the new challenges that COVID might put in front of you, but regardless of those challenges, why are you going to still keep moving forward just as fast, if not even potentially faster?
One thing I'm really impressed about, and I'm actually, I'm going to do a SEPA TV episode on it very soon. Okay. <laughs> Consumers Energy in Michigan. Their CEO, Patty Poppy, is just phenomenal. She's an amazing leader. She is super innovative. But one of the things that I was so impressed by was that when the pandemic hit and they saw the challenges that their customers were having, they saw the sh uh, shape of their load, you know, their demand curve changing based on people now being at home rather than being at work. And they sort of right. saw, saw these dynamics at play. They launched a new program with Google. And from the time they first even thought about maybe we need to institute this program to when it was actually deployed, it was only four months. And wow. anyone who knows utilities, like that is light speed, right? I mean, <laughs> so that to me just stands out as a real amazing example of the utility already was doing all the right things in terms of decarbonizing. They actually have one of the most aggressive timelines to decarbonize very quickly uh, in the grand scheme of things. But the fact that they were able to, from project idea to execution in four months, in the middle of a pandemic where everybody was getting used to working from home, their own employees were getting used to working from home, and there's all this change happening, just says so much. And I love that story because it demonstrates that utilities can innovate and utilities can can move quickly. Do you believe organizations like utilities are prepared for a just clean energy transition uh, to ensure former fossil fuel workers are included? This is something I feel very strongly about, as you know, mm -hmm. um, making sure that we are able to achieve a lot of our goals, especially around the DEI uh, space mm -hmm. with former fossil fuel workers. What are your thoughts around that topic? Yeah, so I, I do think utilities are prepared. I think utilities actually have been thinking about this issue okay. a lot more, a lot longer than people in the clean energy space. I mean, with the exception of there might be some NGOs that have a very specific just transition focus, right. which right. You know, that's different. But just generally, if you're talking about the utility industry and the clean energy industry, which by the way, are becoming the same thing. Uh, <laughs> but if you want to put them in two separate buckets, the utilities have been thinking about this because they've started closing plants already and they've had yeah. to be preparing. And I think the challenge or one of the challenges is a time frame challenge in that and you mentioned SEPA TV earlier. So I've done this series on utilities and social equity. And in every one of those conversations, we talked about closing coal plants and what the utility has done to make sure that it was a just, just transition and protecting the both the workers, but also the communities where the yeah. plants were. And I've asked all of them, like how long, given the experience you've had, how much notice do you really have to give before a plant closes to have enough time to retrain workers, do the economic development to make sure once the plant closes, there's something else in that community to support right. the economy. The shortest time frame answer I got was three years. So I sort of got this three to five year yeah. window is how much notice. I think there's this challenge in that obviously from a climate change standpoint, we want those plants to close absolutely as fast as possible. Right. But if you, with no notice, close a plant, it is going to have negative implications on a lot of people. And so how do you strike that right balance of closing the plant as fast as you can without 
harming the people in the community that are associated yeah. with that plant. So I think that's a real sort of rubbing spot where you have to really be thoughtful about that. Again, in the interviews I've done with utilities on this, there's so many great stories about the things, the apprenticeship programs, working with local and state economic development authorities. One of my favorite stories is one of the American Electric Power AEP utility companies, Appalachian Power. I think it's West Virginia, though, where they did a skills mapping exercise. And in fact, this was actually not for the coal plant, but for the coal mine. And what they found was that the skills of coal miners actually map very closely to the skills of people that work in aerospace manufacturing plants. Because apparently coal mining is now a very highly technical process. And so the skills map almost directly overlap with the skills of the aerospace industry. That's incredible. They've essentially now created this aerospace economic development zone and there were you know the utility is working together with the state and the others in the community to try to bring aerospace manufacturing to the location in the area where the coal mines used to exist. That's so interesting because it doesn't so in my mind it's like energy it needs to be energy like for like right so you know if it's not coal then another energy right but I mean it's so short-sighted because it It doesn't have to be that, obviously, as your case study points out. That's a good point, right? It doesn't, it's not energy to energy, because another example that I was talking with, actually the CEO from Salt River Project in Phoenix about, with a plant that they were closing that was on the Navajo Nation, but they created this apprenticeship program for a certain number of the employees from the coal plant and trained them as IT technicians. And so, again, those people got trained to be able to work in any industry, yeah. right? not just the energy industry, but they, they got trained in IT skills. So I think there is a lot of opportunity. It's not just this sort of small subset of other energy jobs that they could have. It's made me look at it in a completely different way. I, I never thought of it like that. Tell us a little bit about SEPA membership. So we'll finish with what are the benefits of being a SEPA member? It depends who you are and what you're looking to get out of it. I'm going to give like the big picture benefits. Of course, there are very tactical, tangible things, but in the grand scheme of things, it it is about the community and the ability to network with all of these other stakeholders and work together to find solutions that go to help solve this immense challenge in front of us. The value, I think, is again, largely in the community, right? The engagement with other members that you get to have, the opportunity to jointly solve problems for the industry that then can benefit your own company. And also, you know, our team is fantastic in terms of just thought leadership. We do have a lot of publications. We have a lot of educational content. So just from a day-to-day standpoint, there's a lot of work that our team does that really helps people be better prepared to do their own job and be more successful at their own job. I will mention one of the ways that we facilitate a lot of what I just mentioned is through working groups. Okay. So we have about 10 working groups and then actually some of those working groups have three or four sub groups under them. But the working groups essentially are, and as an example, we have an EV working group. So there's a group of about 600 people in that working group who all have a common interest in all things EVs. And then under that group, we have four subcommittees, which I'm not going to get them all right. But, you know, there's one that's sort of like on regulatory and rates. 
There's one on fleets. I forgot what the other two are off the top of my head. But it's an opportunity, again, to engage on a regular basis with a group of people from a variety of different perspectives around specific topics. So I used EVs as an example, but we also have a microgrids working group. We have a storage working group. Some of the working groups are super technical. We have a, you know, a interoperability and sort of standards related working groups, yeah, which yeah, don't ask me to explain those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the working groups are really valuable and, and provide a forum for that sort of continuous ongoing engagement uh, amongst the members. That's great. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to the Greenlight Podcast. Are you looking for your next role in climate tech? Join the latest growing network of clean tech professionals and be the first to know about what industry-leading clean tech companies first post new job openings, from development to finance to marketing, by checking out our website, dylan-green.com slash latest hyphen jobs. Dylan Green is transforming business through talent. You can also find us on YouTube where we engage with today's top clean energy leaders.